Welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is your host, D.B. Spitzer. We are in week two of the collected works of Poe, Edgar Allan Poe. And uh, yeah, so we're going to have that going on. And here's the thing. It's all going to drop on Tuesday. All of it. Black Clock Audio Tales drops on Tuesday. It's going to be a week worth of stuff, but it's all going to drop on Tuesday. And I'll step it out on Tuesday. So your podcast player will know what order to play it in instead of trying to play it all at once. So yeah, this is going to be interesting. We're going to see how this works and let us know if you like it, if you hate it, if you want us to switch any other way, if you want us to do things any other way. And yeah, this is going to be the intro for all week. So thank you so much for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos Black Clock Audio Tales. Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans Holiday Special and Zero Episode Articulate Warbling. Gonna try and come up with some other stuff. Maybe, I don't know, maybe maybe, maybe you have an idea and you want to contact pgttcm.com and contact us there. Or you want to contact us on Facebook at pgttcm.com or Black Clock Audio Tales or we're on, on Facebook, we're People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos Black Clock Audio Tales. And you can always contact Zach from Articulate Warbling by checking out Articulate Warbling. And Dave's got something for Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, but I can't remember the thing for it right now. But hey, uh, I'll let you know once we get closer to episode one coming out on that. As always, this episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com. Look cool with a vintage-looking t-shirt from your favorite cult film from the 80s and 90s. Maybe the 70s, too, hey. And what about those bunny slippers? Keeping your feet warm, keeping your feet dry. Well, I mean, don't go walking around in novelty slippers outside. You're going to get your feet wet. What? Stay inside. Stay warm. Watch some cult films. BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com a sponsor of PGTTCM and Black Clock Audio Tales since, I don't know, 2017? Something like that. All right. On with the show, Edgar Allan Poe. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and PGTTCM.com. And, hey, keep the show going. Donate a buck or five to PayPal.com slash... No, PayPal.me slash PGTTCM or going to pgttcm.podbean.com and clicking the patron button and donating something. We'll figure out something in the future for, I don't know, donating more than a dollar, but if you donate a dollar, we'll say your name and contact me so I know that you did it because, I don't know, for some reason I'm not getting messages about that kind of stuff. And if you've donated money and I didn't say your name, Message me on Facebook, and I'll say your name, and be like, hey, this person donated money. Anyway, Ed Allan Poe, here we go. The Collected Works of Ed Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 2, Section 15, The Pit and the Pendulum. I was sick, sick unto death with that long agony, and when they had length unbound me, and I was permitted to sit, 
I felt that my senses were leaving me. The sentence, the dread sentence of death, was the last of distinct accentuation which reached my ear. After that, the sound of the inquisitional voices seemed merged in one dreamy, indeterminate hum. It conveyed to my soul the idea of revolution, perhaps from its association and fancy with the blur of a mill-wheel. This only for a brief period, for presently I heard no more. Yet for a while I saw, but with how terrible an exaggeration I saw the lips of the black-robed judges. They appeared to me white, whiter than the sheet upon which I trace these words, and thin even to grotesqueness, thin with the intensity of their expression of firmness, of immovable resolution, of stern contempt of human torture. I saw that the degrees of what to me was fate were still issuing from those lips. I saw them writhe with a deadly locution. I saw them fashion the syllables of my name, and I shuddered, because no sound succeeded. I saw, too, for a few moments of delirious horror, the soft and nearly imperceptible waving of the sable draperies which enwrapped the walls of the apartment, and then my vision fell upon the seven tall candles upon the table. At first they wore the aspect of charity, and seemed white and slender angels who would save me. But then, all at once, there came a most deadly nausea over my spirit, and I felt every fiber in my frame thrill as if I had touched the wire of a galvanic battery, while the angel forms became meaningless specters with heads of flame, and I saw that from them there would be no help. And then there stole into my fancy, like a rich musical note, the thought of that sweet rest there must be in the grave. The thought came gently and stealthily, and it seemed long before it attained full appreciation, but just as my spirit came at length properly to feel and entertain it, the figures of the judges vanished, as if magically from before me. The tall candles sank into nothingness. Their flames went out utterly, the blackness of darkness superintended. All sensations appeared swallowed up in a mad rushing descent, as of the soul into Hades. Then silence, stillness, night were the universe. I had swooned, but still will not say that all of consciousness was lost. What of it there remained I will not attempt to define or even to describe. Yet all was not lost. In the deepest slumber, no. In delirium, no. In a swoon, no. In death, no. Even in the grave, all is not lost. Else there is no immortality for man. Arousing from the most profound of slumbers, we break the gossamer web of some dream. Yet in a second afterward, so frail may that web have been. We remember not that existence. It seems probable that, upon reaching the second stage, we could recall the impressions of the first. We should find these impressions eloquent in memories of the gulf beyond. And that gulf is what? How at least shall we distinguish its shadows from those of the tomb? But if the impressions of what I have 
termed the first stage are not at will recalled yet after long interval do they not come unbidden while we marvel whence they came he who has never swooned is not he who finds strange places and wildly familiar faces and coals that glow is not he who beholds floating in mid-air the sad visions that the many may not view is not he who ponders over the perfume of some novel flower is not he whose brain grows bewildered with the meaning of some musical cadence which has never before arrested his attention amid frequent and thoughtful endeavors to remember amid earnest struggles to regather some token of the state of seeming nothingness into which my soul had lapsed there have been moments when i have dreamed of success there have been brief very brief periods when i have conjured up remembrances which the lucid reason of a later epoch assures me could have had reference only to that condition of seeming unconsciousness these shadows of memory tell indistinctly of tall figures that lifted and bore me in silence down down still down till a hideous dizziness oppressed me at the mere idea of the interminableness of the descent they tell also of a vague horror at my heart on account of that heart's unnatural stillness then comes a sense of sudden motionless throughout all things as if those who bore me a ghastly train had outrun in their descent the limits of the limitless and paused from the wearisomeness of their toil after this i call to mind flatness and dampness and then all its madness this madness of a memory which busies itself among forbidden things very suddenly there came back to my soul motion and sound the tumultuous motion of the heart and in my ears the sound of its beating then a pause in which all is blank then again sound and motion and touch a tingling sensation pervading my frame then the mere consciousness of existence without thought a condition which lasted long then very suddenly thought and shuddering terror their earnest endeavor to comprehend my true state then a strong desire to lapse into insensibility then a rushing revival of soul and a successful effort to move and now a full memory of the trial of the judges of the sable draperies of the sentence of the sickness of the swoon then entire forgetfulness of all that followed of all that a later day and much earnestness of endeavor have enabled me vaguely to recall so far i had not opened my eyes i felt that i lay upon my back unbound i reached out my hand and it fell heavily upon something damp and hard there i suffered it to remain for many minutes while i strove to imagine where and what it could be i longed yet dared not to employ my vision i dreaded the first glance at objects around me it was not that i feared to look upon things horrible but that i grew aghast lest there should be nothing to see at length with a wild desperation at heart i quickly unclosed my eyes my worst thoughts 
then were confirmed. The blackness of eternal night encompassed me. I struggled for breath. The intensity of the darkness seemed to oppress and stifle me. The atmosphere was intolerably close. I still lay quietly and made effort to exercise my reason. I brought to mind the inquisitional proceedings and attempted from that point to deduce my real condition. The sentence had passed, and it appeared to me that a very long interval of time had since elapsed. Yet not for a moment did I suppose myself actually dead. Such a supposition notwithstanding what we read in fiction is altogether inconsistent with real existence. But where, and in what state was I? The condemned to death, I knew, perished usually at the auto de fe, and one of these had been held on the very night of the day of my trial. Had I been remanded to my dungeon to await the next sacrifice, which would not take place for many months? This I at once saw could not be. Victims had been in immediate demand. Moreover, my dungeon, as well as all the condemned cells at Toledo, had stone floors, and light was not altogether excluded. A fearful idea now suddenly drove the blood and torrents upon my heart, and for a brief period I once more relapsed into insensibility. Upon recovering, I at once started to my feet. Trembling convulsively in every fiber, I thrust my arms wildly above and around me in all directions. I felt nothing, yet dreaded to move a step, lest I should be impeded by the walls of a tomb. Perspiration burst from my every pore, and stood in cold, big beads upon my forehead. The agony of suspense grew at length intolerable, and I cautiously moved forward, with my arms extended and my eyes straining from their sockets, in the hope of catching some faint ray of light. I proceeded for many paces, but still all was blackness and vacancy. I breathed more freely. It seemed evident that mine was not at least the most hideous of fates. And now, as I still continued to step cautiously onward, there came thronging upon my recollection a thousand vague rumors of the horrors of Toledo. Of the dungeons there had been strange things narrated, fables. I had always deemed them, but yet strange, and too ghastly to repeat save in a whisper. Was I left to perish of starvation in this subterranean world of darkness? Or what fate, perhaps even more fearful awaited me. That the result would be death, and a death of more than customary bitterness. I knew too well the character of my judges to doubt. The mode and the hour were all that occupied or distracted me. My outstretched hands at length encountered some solid obstruction. It was a wall, seemingly of stone masonry, very smooth, slimy, and cold. I followed it up, stepping with all the careful distrust with which certain antique narratives had inspired me. This process, however, afforded me no means of ascertaining the dimensions of my dungeon. As I might make its circuit and return to the point whence I set out, without being aware of the fact, 
so perfectly uniform seemed the wall. I therefore sought the knife which had been in my pocket when led into the inquisitional chamber. But it was gone. My clothes had been exchanged for a wrapper of coarse serge. I had thought of forcing the blade in some minute crevice of the masonry so as to identify my point of departure. The difficulty, nevertheless, was but trivial, although in the disorder of my fancy it seemed at first insufferable. I tore a part of the hem from the robe and placed the fragment at full length and at right angles to the wall. In groping my way around the prison, I could not fail to encounter this rag upon completing the circuit. So at least I thought, but I had not counted upon the extent of the dungeon or upon my own weakness. The ground was moist and slippery. I staggered onward for some time, then I stumbled and fell. My excessive fatigue induced me to remain prostrate, and sleep soon overtook me as I lay. Upon awakening and stretching forth an arm, I found beside me a loaf and a pitcher with water. I was too much exhausted to reflect upon this circumstance, but ate and drank with avidly. Shortly afterward I resumed my tour around the prison, and with much toil came at last upon the fragment of the surge. Up to the period when I fell I had counted fifty-two paces, and upon resuming my walk I had counted forty-eight more. When I arrived at the rag, there were in all then a hundred paces, and admitting two paces to the yard I presumed the dungeon to be fifty yards in circuit. I had met, however, with many angles in the wall, and thus I could form no guess as to the shape of the vault, for vault I could not help supposing it to be. I had little object, certainly no hope, these resources, but a vague curiosity prompted me to continue them. Quitting the wall, I resolved to cross the area of the enclosure. At first I proceeded with extreme caution, for the floor, although seemingly of solid material, was treacherous with slime. At length, however, I took courage and did not hesitate to step firmly, endeavoring to cross in as a direct line as possible. I had advanced some ten or twelve paces in this manner. When the remnant of the torn hem of my robe became entangled between my legs, I stepped on it and fell violently on my face. In the confusion attending my fall, I did not immediately apprehend a somewhat startling circumstance, which yet, in a few seconds afterwards, and while I still lay prostrate, arrested my attention. It was this. My chin rested upon the floor of the prison, but my lips in the upper portion of my head, although seemingly at a less elevation than the chin, touched nothing. At the same time my forehead seemed bathed in a clammy vapor, and the peculiar smell of decayed fungus arose to my nostrils. I put forward my arm and shuddered to find that I had fallen at the very brink of a circular pit, whose extent, of course, I had no means of ascertaining at the moment. Groping about the masonry just below the margin, I succeeded in dislodging a small fragment and let it fall into the abyss. For many seconds I hearkened to its reverberations as it dashed against the sides of the chasm in its descent. At length there was a sullen plunge into water, succeeded by loud echoes. At the same moment there came a sound 
resembling the quick opening as a rapid closing of a door overhead, while a faint gleam of light flashed suddenly through the gloom and as suddenly faded away. I saw clearly the doom which had been prepared for me, and congratulated myself upon the timely accident by which I had escaped. Another step forward before my fall and the world had seen me no more, and the death just avoided was of that very character which I had regarded as fabulous and frivolous in the tales respecting the Inquisition. To the victims of its tyranny there was the choice of death with its direst physical agonies or death with its most hideous moral horrors. I had been reserved for the latter. By long suffering my nerves had been unstrung until I trembled at the sound of my own voice, and had become in every respect a fitting subject for the species of torture which awaited me. Shaking in every limb I groped my way back to the wall, resolving there to perish rather than risk the terror of the wells, of which my imagination now pictured many in various positions about the dungeon. In other conditions of mind I might have had courage to end my misery at once by a plunge into one of these abysses, but now I was the veriest of cowards. Neither could I forget that I had read of these pits, that the sudden extinction of life formed no part of their most horrible plan. Agitation of spirit kept me awake for many long hours, but at length I again slumbered. Upon arousing, I found by my side, as before, a loaf and a pitcher of water. A burning thirst consumed me, and I emptied the vessel in a draught. It must have been drugged, for scarcely had I drunk before I became irresistibly drowsy. A deep sleep fell upon me, a sleep like that of death. How long it lasted, of course, I know not. But when once again I unclosed my eyes, the objects around me were visible. By a wild sulfurous luster, the origin of which I could not at first determine, I was enabled to see the extent and aspect of the prison. In its size I had been greatly mistaken. The whole circuit of its walls did not exceed twenty-five yards. For some minutes this fact occasioned me a world of vain trouble. Vain indeed. For what could be of less importance under the terrible circumstances which environed me than the mere dimensions of my dungeon? but my soul took a wild interest in its trifles, and I busied myself in endeavors to account for the error I had committed in my measurement. The truth at length flashed upon me. In my first attempt at exploration, I had counted fifty-two paces up to the period when I fell. I must have been within a pace or two of the fragment of surge, in fact. I had nearly performed the circuit of the vault, when I slept, and upon awakening, I must have returned upon my steps, thus supposing the circus nearly double what it actually was. My confusion of mind prevented me from observing that I began my tour with the wall to the left, and ended it with the wall to the right. I had been deceived, too, in respect to the shape of the enclosure. In feeling my way I had found many angles, and thus deduced an area of great irregularity, so potent is the effect of total darkness upon one arousing from lethargy of sleep. The angles were simply those of a few slight depressions or niches at odd intervals. The general shape of the prison was square, 
What I had taken for masonry seemed now to be iron or some other metal in huge plates whose sutures or joints occasioned the depression. The entire surface of this metallic enclosure was rudely daubed in all the hideous and repulsive devices to which the charnel superstition of the monks has given rise. The figures of fiends in aspects of manis, with skeleton forms, and other more really fearful images overspread and disfigured the walls. I observed that the outlines of these monstrosities were sufficiently distinct but that the colors seemed faded and blurred, as if from the effects of a damp atmosphere. I now noticed the floor, too, which was of stone. In the center yawned the circular pit from whose jaws I had escaped. But it was the only one in the dungeon. All this I saw indistinctly and by much effort, for my personal condition had been greatly changed during slumber. I now lay upon my back, and at full length, on a species of low framework of wood. To this I was securely bound by a long strap resembling a surgical. It passed in many convolutions about my limbs and body, leaving at liberty only my head and my left arm to such extent that I could, by dint of much exertion, supply myself with food from an earthen dish which lay by my side on the floor. I saw to my horror that the picture had been removed. I say to my horror, for I was consumed with intolerable thirst. This thirst it appeared to be the design of my persecutors to stimulate, for the food in the dish was meat pungently seasoned. Looking upward, I surveyed the ceiling of my prison. It was some thirty or forty feet overhead and constructed much as the side walls. In one of its panels, a very singular figure riveted my whole attention. It was the painted figure of time as he is commonly represented, save that, in lieu of a sigh, he held what at a casual glance I supposed to be the pictured image of a huge pendulum, such as we see on antique clocks. There was something, however, in the appearance of this machine which caused me to regard it more attentively. While I gazed directly upward at it, for its position was immediately over my own, I fancied that I saw it in motion. In an instant afterward the fancy was confirmed. Its sweep was brief, and of course slow. I watched it for some minutes, somewhat in fear, but more in wonder, wearied at length with observing its dull movement. I turned my eyes upon the other object in the cell. A slight noise attracted my notice. Looking to the floor, I saw several enormous rats traversing it. They had issued from the well, which lay within a view to my right. Even then, while I gazed, they came up in troops hurriedly, with ravenous eyes allured by the scent of the meat. From this it required much effort and attention to scare them away. It might have been half an hour, or perhaps even an hour, for I could take but imperfect note of time before I again cast my eyes upward. What I then saw confounded and amazed me. The sweep of the pendulum had increased in extent by nearly a yard. As a natural consequence, its velocity also much greater. But what mainly disturbed me was the idea that had perceptibly descended. I now observed, with what horror, and is needless to say, 
that its neither extremity was formed of a crescent, glittering steel, about a foot in length from horn to horn, the horns upward, and the under edge evidently as keen as that of a razor. Like a razor also it seemed massy and heavy, tapering from the edge into a solid and broad structure above. It was appended to a weighty rod of brass, and the whole hissed as it swung through the air. I could no longer doubt the doom prepared for me by monkish ingenuity and torture. My cognizance of the pit had become known to the inquisitional agents, the pit whose horrors had been destined for so bold a resident as myself, the pit, typical of hell and regarded by rumor as the ultimate thule of all their punishments. The plunge into this pit I had avoided by the merest of accidents. I knew that surprise or entrapment into torment formed an important portion of all the grotesquerie of this dungeon death. Having failed to fall, it was no part of the demon plan to hurl me into the abyss, and thus, there being no alternative, a different and a milder destruction awaited me. Milder. I half smiled in my agony as I thought of such application of such a term. What boots it to tell of the long, long hours of horror more than mortal during which I counted the rushing vibrations of the steel. Inch by inch, line by line, with the descent only appreciable at intervals that seemed ages. Down and still down it came. Days passed. It might have been that many days passed ere it swept so closely over me as to fan me with its acrid breath. The odor of the sharp steel forced itself into my nostrils. I prayed, I wearied heaven with my prayer for its more speedy descent. I grew frantically mad and struggled to force myself upward against the sweep of the fearful scanter. And then I fell suddenly calm and lay smiling at the glittering death as a child at some rare bauble. There was another interval of utter insensibility it was brief for upon again lapsing into life there had been no perceptible descent in the pendulum but it might have been long for i knew there were demons who took note of my swoon and who could have arrested the vibration at pleasure upon my recovery too i felt very oh inexpressibly sick and weak as if through long inanition even amid the agonies of that period, the human nature craved food. With painful effort, I outstretched my left arm as far as my bounds permitted and took possession of a small remnant which had been spared me by the rats. As I put a portion of it in within my lips, there rushed to my mind a half-formed thought of joy, of hope. Yet what business had I with hope? It was, as I say, a half-formed thought. Man has many such which are never completed. I felt that it was of joy, of hope, but felt also that it had perished in its formation. In vain, I struggled to perfect, to regain it. Long-suffering had nearly annihilated all my ordinary powers of mind. I was an imbecile, an idiot, 
The vibration of the pendulum was at right angles to my length. I saw that the crescent was designed to cross the region of my heart. It would fray the surge of my robe. It would return and repeat its operations again and again. Notwithstanding terrifically wide sweeps some thirty feet or more, and the its hissing vigor of its descent, sufficient to sunder these very walls of iron, still the fraying of my robe would not be all that for several minutes it would accomplish. And at this thought I paused. I dared not go further than this reflection. I dwelt upon it with the pernacity of attention, as if in so dwelling I could arrest here the descent of the steel. I forced myself to ponder upon the sound of the crescent as it should pass across the garment, upon the peculiar thrilling sensation which the friction of cloth produces on the nerves. I pondered upon all this frivolously until my teeth were on edge. Down, steadily down it crept. I took a frenzied pleasure in contrasting its downward with its lateral velocity, to the right, to the left, far and wide, with the shriek of a damned spirit, to my heart with the stealthy pace of the tiger. I alternately laughed and howled as the one or the other idea grew predominant. Down, certainly relentlessly down, it vibrated within three inches of my bosom. I struggled violently, furiously to free my left arm. This was free only from the elbow to the hand. I could reach the ladder from the platter beside me to my mouth, with great effort, but no farther. Could I have broken the fastening above the elbow? I would have seized and attempted to arrest the pendulum. I might as well have attempted to arrest an avalanche. Down, still unceasingly, still inevitably down. I grasped and struggled at each vibration. I shrunk convulsively at every sweep. My eyes followed its outward or upward whirls with the eagerness of the most unseeming despair. They closed themselves spasmodically at the descent. Although death would have been a relief, oh, how unspeakable! Still I quivered in every nerve to think how slight a sinking of the machinery would precipitate that keen, glistening axe upon my bosom. It was hope that prompted the nerve to quiver, the frame to shrink. It was hope, the hope that triumphs on the rack that whispers to the death condemned even in the dungeons of the Inquisition. I saw that some ten or twelve vibrations would bring the steel in actual contact with my robe, and with this observation there suddenly came over my spirit all the keen, collected calmness of despair. For the first time during many hours, or perhaps days, I thought, it now occurred to me that the bandage, or surgical, which enveloped me was unique. I was tied by no separate cord. The first stroke of the razor-like crescent athwart any portion of the band would so detach it that it might be unwound from my person by means of my left hand. But how fearful in that case the proximity of the steel! The result of the slightest struggle, how deadly, was it the pendulum. Dreading to find my faint and, as it seemed, in last hope frustrated, 
I so far elevated my head as to obtain a distinct view of my breast. The surgical enveloped my limbs and body close in all directions, save in the path of the destroying crescent. Scarcely had I dropped my head back into its original position when there flashed upon my mind what I could not better describe than as the unformed half of that idea of deliverance to which I have previously alluded, and of which morality only floated interminably through my brain when I raised food to my burning lips. The whole thought was now present, feeble, scarcely sane, scarcely definite, but still entire. I proceeded at once, with the nervous energy of despair, to attempt its execution. For many hours the immediate vicinity of the low framework upon which I lay had been literally swarming with rats. They were wild, bold, ravenous, their red eyes glaring up upon me as if they waited, but for motionless on my part, to make me their prey. To what food, I thought, have they been accustomed in the well? They had devoured, in spite of all my efforts to prevent them, all but a small remnant of the contents of the dish. I had fallen into an habitual seesaw, or wave of the hand, about the platter, and at length the unconscious uniformity of the movement deprived it of effect. In their voracity the vermin frequently fastened their sharp fangs on my fingers. With the pesticles of the oily and spicy veil which now remained, I thoroughly rubbed the bandage wherever I could reach it, and then, raising my hand from the floor, I lay breathlessly still. At first the ravenous animals were startled and terrified at the change. At the cessation of movement they shrank alarmedly back. Many sought the well. But this was only for a moment. I had not counted in vain upon their veracity. Observing that I remained without motion, one or two of the boldest leaped upon the framework and smelt of the surgical. This seemed the signal for a general rush. Forth from the well they hurried their fresh troops. They clung to the wood, they overran it, and leaped in hundreds upon my person. The measured movement of the pendulum disturbed them not at all. Avoiding its stroke, they busied themselves with the anointed bandage. They pressed, they swarmed upon me in ever-accumulating heaps. They worthed upon my throat, their cold lips sought my own. I was half-stifled by their thronging pressure, disgust for which the world has no name, swelled my bosom and chilled with heavy clamminess my heart. Yet one minute, and I felt that the struggle would be over. Plainly I perceived the loosening of the bandage. I knew that in more than one place it must already be severed. With a more than human resolution, I lay still. Nor had I ear to my calculations, nor had I endured in vain. At length I felt that I was free. The surgical hung in ribbons from my body, but the stroke of the pendulum already pressed upon my bosom. It had divided the surge of the robe, it had cut through the linen beneath. Twice again it swung, and a sharp sense of pain shot through every nerve. But the moment of escape had arrived. At a wave of my hand, my deliverers hurried tumultuously away. With steady movement, cautious, sidelong, shrinking, and slow, I slid from the embrace of the bandage and beyond the reach of the shimmer. For the moment, at least, I was free. Free, and in the grasp of the Inquisition. 
I had scarcely stepped from my wooden bed of horror upon the stone floor of the prison when the motion of the hellish machine ceased, and I beheld it drawn up by some invisible force to the ceiling. This was a lesson in which I took desperately to heart. My every motion was undoubtedly watched. Free. I had but escaped death in one form of agony to be delivered into worse than death in some other. With that thought, I rolled my eyes nervously around the barriers of iron that hemmed me in. Something unusual, some change which at first I could not appreciate distinctly, it was obvious, had taken place in the apartment. For many minutes of a dreamy and trembling abstraction I busied myself in vain, unconnected conjecture. During this period I became aware for the first time of the origin of the sulphurous light which illuminated the cell. It proceeded from a fissure about half an inch in width, extended entirely around the prison at the base of the walls, which thus appeared and were completely separated from the floor. I endeavored, but of course in vain, to look through the aperture. As I arose from the attempt, the mystery of the alteration of the chamber broke at once upon my understanding. I had observed that, although the outlines of the figures upon the walls were sufficiently distinct, yet the colors seemed blurred and indefinite. These colors had now assumed, and were momentarily assuming, a startling and most intense brilliancy that gave to the spectral and fiendish portraitures the aspect that might have thrilled even firmer nerves than my own. Demon eyes of a wild and ghastly vivacity glared upon me in a thousand directions, where none had been visible before, and gleamed with the lurid luster of a fire that I could not force my imagination to regard as unreal. Unreal, even while I breathed, there came to my nostrils the breath of the vapor of heated iron. A suffocating odor pervaded the prison. A deeper glow settled each moment in the eyes that glared at my agonies. A richer tint of chrism confused itself over the pictured horrors of blood. I panted. I gasped for breath. There could be no doubt of the design of my tormentors. Oh, most unrelenting, oh, most demonic of men, I shrank from the glowing metal to the center of the cell. Amid the thought of the fiery destruction that impended, the idea of the coolness of the well over my soul like balm, I rushed to its deadly brink. I threw my straining vision below. The glare from the enkindled roof illuminated its innermost recesses. Yet, for a wild moment, did my spirit refuse to comprehend the meaning of what I saw. At length it forced. It wrestled its way into my soul. It burned itself upon my shuddering reason. Oh, for a voice to speak, oh, horror! Oh, any horror but this, with a shriek! I rushed from the margin and buried my face in my hands, weeping bitterly. The heat rapidly increased, and once again I looked up, shuddering as if with a fit of the hog. There seemed to be a second change in the cell, and now the change was obviously in the form. As before, it was in vain that I at first endeavored to appreciate or understand what was taking place. But not long was I left in doubt. The inquisitional vengeance had been hurried by my twofold escape, and there was to be no more dallying with the king of terrors. The room had been square. I saw that the 
Two of this iron angles were now acute, two consequently obtuse. The fearful difference quickly increased with a low rumbling or moaning sound. In an instant the apartment had shifted its form into that of a lozenge. But the alteration stopped not here. I neither hoped nor desired it to stop. I could have clasped the red walls to my bosom as a garment of eternal peace. Death! I said any death but that of the pit. Fool! Might I have not known that into the pit it was the object of the burning iron to urge me? Could I resist its glow? Or, if even that, could I withstand its pressure and now, flatter and flatter, glue the lingerie with a rapidity that left me no time for contemplation, its center, and, of course, its greatest width, came just over the yawning gulf. I shrank back, but the closing walls pressed me resistlessly onward. At length, for my seared and writhing body, there was no longer an inch of foothold on the firm floor of the prison. I struggled no more, but the agony my soul found vent in one loud, long, and final scream of despair. I felt that I tottered upon the brink I averted my eyes. There was a discordant hum of human voices. There was a loud blast of many trumpets. There was a harsh grating of a thousand thunders. The firing walls rushed back, an outstretched arm caught my own as I fell fainting into the abyss. It was that of General LaSalle. The French army had entered Toledo. The Inquisition was in the hands of its enemies. End of the Pit and the Pendulum Recording by Mike Vendetti, Canyon City, Colorado MikeVendetti.com Recording by Jacqueline Provo. The Collected Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 2, The Premature Burial. There are certain themes of which the interest is all-absorbing, but which are too entirely horrible for the purposes of legitimate fiction. These the mere romanticist must eschew, if he do not wish to offend or to disgust. There are with propriety handled only when the severity and majesty of truth sanctify and sustain them. We thrill, for example, with the most intense of pleasurable pain over the accounts of the passage of the Beresina, of the earthquake at Lisbon, of the plague at London, of the massacre of St. Bartholomew, or of the stifling of the hundred and twenty-three prisoners in the black hole at Calcutta. But in these accounts it is the fact, it is the reality, it is the history which excites. As inventions we should regard them with simple abhorrence. I have mentioned some few of the more prominent and august calamities on record. But in these it is the extent, not less than the character of the calamity, which so vividly expresses the fancy. I need not remind the reader that, from the long and weird catalogue of human miseries, I might have selected many individual instances more replete with essential suffering than any of these vast generalities of disaster. The true wretchedness, indeed, the ultimate woe, is particular, not diffuse. 
that the ghastly extremes of agony are endured by man the unit and never by man the mass. For this, let us thank a merciful God. To be buried while alive is, beyond question, the most terrific of these extremes which has ever fallen to the lot of mere mortality. That it has frequently, very frequently, so fallen will scarcely be denied by those who think. The boundaries which divide life from death are at best shadowy and vague. Who shall say where the one ends and where the other begins? We know that there are diseases in which occur total cessations of all the apparent functions of vitality, and yet in which these cessations are merely suspensions, properly so called. They are only temporary pauses in the incomprehensible mechanism. A certain period elapses, and some unseen mysterious principle again sets its motion, the magic pinions and the wizard wheels, the silver cord was not forever loosed, nor the golden bowl irreparably broken. But where, meantime, was the salt produced such effects, that the well-known occurrence of such cases of suspended animation must naturally give rise now and then to premature interments. Apart from the consideration, we have the direct testimony of medical and ordinary experience to prove that a vast number of such interments have actually taken place. I might refer at once, if necessary, to a hundred well-authenticated instances, one of very remarkable character, and of which the circumstances may be fresh in the memory of the, some of my readers, occurred not very long ago in the neighboring city of Baltimore, where it occasioned a painful, intense, and widely extended excitement. The wife of one of the most respectable citizens, a lawyer of eminence and a member of Congress, was seized with a sudden and unaccountable illness, which completely baffled the skill of her physicians. After much suffering, she died, or was supposed to die. No one suspected, indeed, or had reason to suspect, that she was not actually dead. She presented all the ordinary appearances of death. The face assumed the usual pinched or sunken outline. The lips were of the usual marble pallor. The eyes were lusterless. There was no warmth. Pulsation had ceased. For three days the body was preserved unburied, during which it had acquired a stony rigidity. The funeral, in short, was hastened on account of the rapid advance of what was supposed to be decomposition. The lady was deposited in her family vault, which for three subsequent years was undisturbed. At the expiration of the term it was opened for the reception of a sarcophagus, but alas, how fearful a shock awaited the husband who personally threw open the door. As its portal swung outwardly back, some white-appareled object fell rattling within his arms. It was a skeleton of his wife in her yet unmolded shroud. A careful investigation rendered it evident that she was revived within two days after entombment, that her struggles within the coffin had caused it to fall from a ledge or shelf to the floor, where it was so broken as to permit her escape. A lamp which had been accidentally left full of oil within the tomb was found empty. It might have been exhausted, however, by evaporation. On the uttermost of the steps which led down into the dread chamber was a large fragment of the coffin, with which it seemed that she had endeavored to arrest attention by striking the iron door. While thus occupied, she probably swooned, or possibly died through sheer terror, and in having passed with him some wretched years, she died. At least her condition so closely resembled death as to deceive every one who saw her. She was buried not in a vault, but in an ordinary grave in the village of her nativity. Filled with despair, and still inflamed by the memory of a profound attachment, 
The lover journeys from the capital to the remote province in which the village lies, with the romantic purpose of disinterring the corpse and possessing himself of its luxuriant tresses. He reaches the grave. At midnight he unearths the coffin, opens it, and is in the act of detaching the hair when he is arrested by the unclosing of the beloved eyes. In fact, the lady had been buried alive. Vitality had not altogether departed, and she was roused by the caresses of her lover from the lethargy which had been mistaken for death. He bore her frantically to his lodgings in the village. He employed certain powerful restoratives suggested by no little medical learning. In fine, she revived. She recognized her preserver. She remained with him until, by slow degrees, she fully recovered her original health. Her woman's heart was not adamant, and this last lesson of love sufficed to soften it. She bestowed it upon Basuet. She returned no more to her husband, but concealing from him her resurrection, fled with her lover to America. Twenty years afterward, the two returned to France in the persuasion that time had so greatly altered the lady's appearance that her friends would be unable to recognize her. They were mistaken, however, for at the first meeting, Monsieur Renel did actually recognize and make claim to his wife. This claim she resisted, and a judicial tribunal sustained her in her resistance, deciding that the peculiar circumstances with the long lapse of years had extinguished not only equitably, but legally the authority of the husband. The Chirurgical Journal of Leipzig, a periodical of high authority and merit, which some American bookseller would do well to translate and republish, records in a late number a very distressing event of the character in question. An officer of artillery, a man of gigantic stature and of robust health, being thrown from an unmanageable horse, received a very severe contusion upon the head, which rendered him insensible at once. The skull was slightly fractured, but no immediate danger was apprehended. Trepanning was accomplished successfully. He was bled, and many other of the ordinary means of relief were adopted. Gradually, however, he fell into a more and more hopeless state of stupor, and finally it was thought that he died. The weather was warm, and he was buried with indecent haste in one of the public cemeteries. His funeral took place on Thursday. On the Sunday following, the grounds of the cemetery were, as usual, much strong with visitors, and about noon an intense excitement was created by the declaration of a peasant that, while sitting upon the grave of the officer, he had distinctly felt a commotion of the earth, as if occasioned by someone struggling beneath. At first little attention was paid to the man's asseveration, but his evident terror and the dogged obstinacy with which he persisted in his story had at length their natural effect upon the crowd. Spades were hurriedly procured, and the grave, which was shamefully shallow, was in a few minutes so far thrown open that the head of its occupant appeared. He was then seemingly dead, but he sat nearly erect within his coffin, the lid of which, in his furious struggles, he had partially uplifted. He was forthwith conveyed to the nearest hospital, and there pronounced to be still living, although in an asphytic condition. After some hours he revived, recognized individuals of his acquaintance, and in broken sentences spoke of his agonies in the grave. From what he related, it was clear that he must have been conscious of life for more than an hour, while inhumed, before lapsing into insensibility. The grave was carelessly and loosely filled with an exceedingly poor soil, and thus some air was necessarily admitted. He heard the footsteps of the crowd overhead, and endeavored to make himself heard in turn. It was the tumult within the grounds of the cemetery, he said, which appeared to awaken him from a deep sleep. But no sooner was he awake than he became fully aware of the awful horrors of his position. 
This patient, it is recorded, was doing well and seemed to be in a fair way of ultimate recovery, but fell a victim to the quackeries of medical experiment. The galvanic battery was applied, and he suddenly expired in one of those ecstatic paroxysms, which occasionally it superinduces. The mention of the galvanic battery, nevertheless, recalls to my memory a well-known and very extraordinary case in point where its action proved the means of restoring to animation a young attorney of London who had been interred for two days. This occurred in 1831 and created, at the time, a very profound sensation wherever it was made the subject of converse. The patient, Mr. Edward Stapleton, had died apparent of typhus fever, accompanied with some anomalous symptoms which had excited the curiosity of his medical attendants. Upon his seeming decease, his friends were requested to sanction a post-mortem examination, but declined to permit it. As often happens which such refusals are made, the practitioners resolved to disinter the body and dissect it at leisure in private. Arrangements were easily effected with some of the numerous corps of body snapshots with which London abounds, and upon the third night after the funeral, the supposed corpse was unearthed from a grave eight feet deep and deposited in the opening chamber of one of the private hospitals. An incision of some extent had been actually made in the abdomen when the fresh and undecayed appearance of the subject suggested an application of the battery. One experiment succeeded another, and the customary effects supervened with nothing to characterize them in any respect except upon one or two occasions a more than ordinary degree of life-likeness in the convulsive act. It grew late, the day was about to dawn, and it was thought expedient at length to proceed at once to the dissection. A student, however, was especially desirous of testing a theory of his own, and insisted upon applying the battery to one of the pectoral muscles. A rough gash was made, and a wire hastily brought in contact with a patient, with a hurried but quite unconvulsive movement, arose from the table, stepped into the middle of the floor, gazed about him uneasily for a few seconds, and then spoke. What he said was unintelligible, but words were uttered. The syllabification was distinct. Having spoken, he fell heavily on the floor. For some moments, all were paralyzed with awe, but the urgency of the case soon restored them their presence of mind. It was seen that Mr. Stapleton was alive, although in a swoon. Upon exhibition of either, he revived and was rapidly restored to health and to the society of his friends from whom, however, all knowledge of his resuscitation was withheld until a relapse was no longer to be apprehended. Their wonder, their rapturous astonishment, may be conceived. The most thrilling peculiarity of this incident, nevertheless, is involved in what Mr. S. himself asserts. He declares that at no period was he altogether insensible, that dully and confusedly he was aware of everything which happened to him, from the moment in which he was pronounced dead by his physicians, to that in which he fell swooning to the floor of the hospital. I am alive for the uncomprehended words which, upon recognizing the locality of the dissecting room, he had endeavored in his extremity to utter. It were an easy matter to multiply such histories as these, but I forbear, for indeed we have no need of such to establish the fact that premature interments occur. When we reflect how very rarely, from the nature of the case, we have it in our power to detect them, we must admit that they may frequently occur without our cognizance. Scarcely, in truth, is a graveyard ever encroached upon, for any purpose, to any great extent, that skeletons are not found in postures which suggest the most fearful of suspicions. Fearful, indeed, the suspicion, but more fearful the doom. It may be asserted without hesitation that no event is so terribly well adapted to inspire the 
supremeness of bodily and of mental distress as his burial before death. The unendurable oppression of the lungs, the stifling fumes from the damp earth, the clinging to the death garments, the rigid embrace of the narrow house, the blackness of the absolute night, the silence like a sea that overwhelms, the unseen but palpable presence of the conqueror worm, these things, with the thoughts of the air and grass above, with memory of dear friends, would fly to save us, if but informed of our fate, and with consciousness that of this fate they can never be informed, that our hopeless portion is that of the really dead, these considerations, I say, carry into the heart, which still palpitates a degree of appalling and intolerable horror from which the most daring imagination must recoil. We know of nothing so agonizing upon earth. We can dream of nothing half so hideous in the realms of the neithermost hell. And thus all narratives upon this topic have an interest profound, an interest nevertheless which, through the sacred awe of the topic itself, very properly and very peculiarly, depends upon our conviction of the truth of the matter narrated. What I have now to tell is of my own actual knowledge, of my own positive and personal experience. For several years, I had been subject to attacks of the singular disorder which physicians have agreed to term catalepsy, in default of a more definitive title. Although both the immediate and the predisposing causes, and even the actual diagnosis of this disease, are still mysterious, its obvious and apparent character is sufficiently well understood. Its variations seem to be chiefly of degree. Sometimes the patient lies for a day only or even for a shorter period in a series of exaggerated lethargy. He is senseless and extremely motionless, but the pulsation of the heart is still faintly perceptible. Some traces of warmth remain, a slight color lingers within the center of the cheek, and upon application of a mirror to the lips, we can detect a torpid, unequal, and vacillating action of the lungs. Then again, the duration of the trance is for weeks, even for months, while the closest scrutiny and the most rigorous medical tests fail to establish any material distinction between the state of the sufferer and what we conceive of absolute death. Very usually he is saved from premature interment solely by the knowledge of his friends that he has been previously subject to catalepsy, by the consequent suspicion excited, and, above all, by the non-appearance of decay. The advances of the malady are luckily gradual. The first manifestations, although marked, are unequivocal. The fits grow successively more and more distinctive and endure each for a longer term than the preceding. In this lies the principal security from inhumation. The unfortunate whose first attack should be of the extreme character which is occasionally seen would almost inevitably be consigned alive to the tomb. My own case differed in no important particular from those mentioned in medical books. Sometimes without any apparent cause, I sank little by little into a condition of hemisyncope, or half-swooned, and in the condition without pain, without ability to stir, or strictly speaking, to think, but with a dull, lethargic consciousness of life, and of the presence of those who surrounded my bed, I remained, until the crisis of the disease restored me, suddenly to perfect sensation. At other times I was quickly and impetuously smitten. I grew sick and numb and chilly and dizzy and so fell prostrate at once. Then for weeks all was void and black and silent, and nothing became the universe. Total annihilation could be no more. From these latter attacks I awoke, however, with a gradation slow in proportion to the suddenness of the seizure. Just as the day dawns to the friendless and houseless beggar who roams the streets throughout the long desolate winter night, just so tardily, just so wearily, just so cheerily, came back to the light of the soul to me.
Apart from the tendency to trance, however, my general health appeared to be good, nor could I perceive that it was at all affected by the one prevalent malady, unless indeed an idiosyncrasy in my ordinary sleep may be looked upon as superinduced. Upon awakening from slumber, I could never gain at once thorough possession of my senses, and always remained for many minutes in much bewilderment and perplexity. The mental faculties in general, but the memory in especial, being a condition of absolute abeyance. And all that I endured there was no physical suffering, but of moral distress and infinitude. My fancy grew charnel. I talked of worms, of tombs, and epitaphs. I was lost in reveries of death and the idea of premature burial held continual possession of my brain. The ghastly danger to which I was subjected haunted me day and night. In the former, the torture of meditation was excessive, and the latter supreme. When the grim darkness overspread the earth, then, with every horror of thought, I shook, shook as the quivering plumes upon the hearse. When nature could endure wakefulness no longer, it was with a struggle that I consented for sleep, for I shuddered to reflect that upon awaking I might find myself the tenant of a grave, and when finally I sank into slumber, it was only to rush at once into a world of phantasms, above which, with vast sable overshadowing wing, hovered predominant the one sepulchral idea. From the innumerable images of gloom which thus oppressed me in dreams, I select for record but a solitary vision. Methought I was immersed in a cataleptic trance of more than usual duration and profundity. Suddenly there was an icy hand upon my forehead, and an impatient, gibbering voice whispered the word, Arise, within my ear. I sat erect. The darkness was total. I could not see the figure of him who had aroused me. I could call to mind neither the period at which I had fallen into the trance, nor the locality in which I then lay. While I remained motionless and busied in endeavors to collect my thought, the cold hand grasped me fiercely by the wrist, shaking it petulantly, while the gibbering voice said again, Arise! Did I not bid thee arise? And who, I demanded, art thou? I have no name in the regions which I inhabit, replied the voice mournfully. I was mortal, but am fiend. I was merciless, but am pitiful. Thou dost feel that I shudder. My teeth chatter as I speak. Yet it is not with the chilliness of the night, of the night without end. This hideousness is insufferable. How canst thou tranquilly sleep? I cannot rest for the cry of these great agonies. These sights are more than I can bear. Get thee up. Come with me into the outer night, and let me unfold to thee the graves. Is not this a spectacle of woe? Behold! I looked, and the unseen figure which still grasped me by the wrist had caused to be thrown open the graves of all mankind, and from each issued the faint phosphoric radiance of decay so that I could see into the innermost recesses, and there view the shrouded bodies in their sad and solemn slumbers with the worm. But alas, the real sleepers were fewer by many millions than those who slumbered not at all, and there was a feeble struggling, and there was a general sad unrest, and from out the depths of the countless pits there came a melancholy rustling from the garments of the buried. And of those who seemed tranquilly to repose, I saw that a vast number had changed, in a great or less degree, the rigid and uneasy position which they had naturally been entombed, and the voice again said to me as I gazed, Is it not, oh, is it not a pitiful sight? But before I could find words to reply, the figure had ceased to grasp my wrist. The phosphoric lights expired, and the graves were closed with a sudden violence, while from out them arose a tumult of despairing cries, saying again, Is it not, oh, God, is it not a very pitiful sight? 
Fantasies such as these presenting themselves at night extended their terrific influence far into my waking hours. My nerves became thoroughly unstrung, and I fell a prey to perpetual horror. I hesitated to ride or to walk or to indulge in any exercise that could carry me from home. In fact, I no longer dared trust myself out of the immediate presence of those who were aware of my proneness to catalepsy. Lest, falling into one of my usual fits, I should be buried before my real condition could be ascertained. I doubted the care, the fidelity of my dearest friends. I dreaded that in some trance of more than customary duration they might be prevailed upon to regard me as irrecoverable. I even went so far as to fear that, as I occasioned much trouble, they might be glad to consider any very protracted attack a sufficient excuse for getting rid of me altogether. It was in vain they endeavored to reassure me by the most solemn promises. I exacted the most sacred oaths that under no circumstances they would bury me until decomposition had so materially advanced as to render farther preservation impossible. And even then, my mortal terrors would listen to no reason, would accept no consolation. I entered into a series of elaborate precautions. Among other things, I had the family vault so remodeled as to admit of being readily opened from within. The slightest pressure upon a long lever that extended far into the tomb would cause the iron portal to fly back. There were arrangements also for the free admission of air and light and convenient receptacles for food and water within the immediate reach of the coffin intended for my reception. This coffin was warmly and softly padded and was provided with a lid fashioned upon the principle of the vault door with the addition of springs so contrived that the feeblest movement of the body could be sufficient to set it at liberty. Besides all this, there was suspended from the roof of the tomb a large bell, the rope of which it was designed should extend through a hole in the coffin and so be fastened to one of the hands of the corpse. But alas, what avails a vigilance against the destiny of man? Not even these well-contrived securities suffice to save from the uttermost agonies of living inhumation, a wretch of these agonies foredoomed. There arrived an epoch, as often before there had arrived, in which I found myself emerging from total unconsciousness into the first feeble and indefinite sense of existence. Slowly, with a tortoise gradation, approached the faint gray dawn of the cycle day. A torpid uneasiness, an apathetic endurance of dull pain, no care, no hope, no effort. Then after a long interval, a ringing in the ears. Then after a lap still longer, a prickling or tingling sensation in the extremities. Then a seemingly eternal period of pleasurable quiescence, during which the awakening feelings are struggling into thought. Then a brief resinking into non-entity. Then a sudden recovery. At length, the slight quivering of an eyelid, and immediately thereupon an electric shock of a terror, deadly and infinite, which sends the blood in torrents from the temples to the heart. And now the first positive effort to think. And now the first endeavor to remember. And now a partial and evanescent success. And now the memory has so far regained its dominion that, in some measure, I am cognizant of my state. I feel that I am not awaking from ordinary sleep. I recollect that I have been subject to catalepsy, and now, at last, as if by the rush of an ocean, my shuddering spirit is overwhelmed by the one grim danger, by the one spectral and ever-prevalent idea. For some minutes after this fancy possessed me, I remained without motion. And why? I could not summon courage to move. I dared not make the effort which was to satisfy me of my fate, and yet there was something at my heart which whispered me 
it was sure despair such as no other species of wretchedness ever calls into being despair alone urged me after long irresolution to uplift the heavy eyelids of my eyes i uplifted them it was dark all dark i knew that the fit was over i knew that the crisis of my disorder had long passed i knew that i had now fully recovered the use of my visual faculties and yet it was dark all dark the intense and utter raylessness of the night that endureth for evermore i endeavored to shriek and my lips and my parched tongue moved convulsively together in the attempt but no voice issued from the cavernous lungs which oppressed as if by the weight of some incumbent mountain gasped and palpitated with the heart at every elaborate and struggling inspiration the movement of the jaws in this effort to cry aloud showed me that they were bound up as is usual with the dead i felt too that i lay upon some hard substance and by something similar my sides were also closely compressed so far i had not ventured to stir any of my limbs but now i violently threw up my arms which had been lying at length with the wrist crossed they struck a solid wooden substance which extended above my person at an elevation of not more than six inches from my face i could no longer doubt that i reposed within a coffin at last and now amid all my in infinite miseries came sweetly the cherub hope for i thought of my precautions i writhed and made spasmodic exertions to force upon the lid it would not move i felt my wrists for the bell rope it was not to be found and now the comforter fled forever and a still sterner despair reigned triumphant for i could not help perceiving the absence of the paddings which i had so carefully prepared and then too there came suddenly to my nostrils the strong peculiar odor of moist earth the conclusion was irresistible i was not within the vault i had fallen into a trance while absent from home while among strangers when or how i could not remember and it was they who had buried me as a dog nailed up in some common coffin and thrust deep deep and forever into some ordinary and nameless grave as this awful conviction forced itself thus into the innermost chambers of my soul i once again struggled to cry aloud and in the second endeavor i succeeded a long wild and continuous shriek or yell of agony resounding through the realms of subterranean night hello hello there said a gruff voice in reply what the devil's the matter now said a second get out of that said a third what do you mean by yowling in that air kind of style like a catty mount said a fourth and hereupon i was seized and shaken without ceremony for several minutes by a junta of very rough-looking individuals they did not arouse me from my slumber for i was wide awake when i screamed but they restored me to the full possession of my memory this adventure occurred near richmond in virginia accompanied by a friend i had proceeded upon a gunning expedition some miles down the banks of the james river night approached and we were overtaken by a storm the cabin of a small sloop lying at anchor in the stream and laden with garden mold afforded us the only available shelter we made the best of it and passed the night on board i slept in one of the only two berths in the vessel and the berths of a sloop of sixty or twenty tons need scarcely be described that which i occupied had no bedding of any kind its extreme width was eighteen inches the distance of its bottom from the deck overhead was precisely the same i found it a matter of exceeding difficulty to squeeze myself in nevertheless i slept soundly and the whole of my vision for it was no dream and no nightmare arose naturally from the circumstances of my position 
from my ordinary bias of thought and from the difficulty to which I have alluded of collecting my senses, and especially of regaining my memory, for a long time after awaking from slumber, the men who shook me were the crew of the sloop and some laborers engaged to unload it. From the load itself came the earthly smell. The bandage about the jaws was the silk handkerchief in which I had bound up my head in default of my customary nightcap. The tortures endured, however, were indubitably quite equal for the time to those of actual sepulture. They were fearfully, they were inconceivably hideous, but out of evil proceeded good, for their very excess wrought in my spirit an inevitable revulsion. My soul acquired tone, acquired temper. I went abroad, I took vigorous exercise, I breathed the free air of heaven, I thought upon other subjects than death, I discarded my medical books, Buchan I burned. I read no night thoughts, no fustian about churchyards, no bugaboo tales such as this. In short, I became a new man and lived a man's life from the memorable night. I dismissed forever my charnel apprehensions, and with them vanished the cataleptic disorder of which, perhaps, they had been less the consequence than the cause. There are moments when, even to the sober eye of reason, the world of our sad humanity may resume a semblance of a hell. But the imagination of man is no courageous to explore with impunity its every cavern. Alas, the grim legion of sepulchral terrors cannot be regarded as altogether fanciful. But like the demons in whose company Aphrasia made his voyage down the Oxus, they must sleep, or they will devour us. They must be suffered to slumber, or we perish. End of The Premature Burial Recording by Jacqueline Provo, Richmond, Virginia Knitterwithcritters.blogspot.com